One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As Cold War tensions began to heighten in the early 1950s, the US became driven, obsessed with one core goal, containing communism. Nowhere was this more true than in Guatemala. As a Central American country with vast US economic ties, the US government, specifically the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, considered Guatemala as being firmly in their backyard and so open to external interference. It was for this reason that in 1954, long before the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis, the US Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, carried out one of its first, most damaging, and notorious military coups, Operation PB Success. I'm your host James Rogers, and to take us through this violent period in Guatemalan history, I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Nolan. Rachel is an expert historian at Boston University, and it's with her help that we take a deep dive into this infamous CIA operation, a military coup that would light a fire of violence in Guatemala that would burn for four decades. I know you're going to find this episode fascinating, so I'd like to thank our regular warfare listener, Sarah Solares, for getting in contact and suggesting the topic. And if there's a history that you want to hear, you think we should cover, then you can do the same. Email us on warfare at historyhit.com or message me on Instagram at James Rogers History. But now, here is Rachel Nolan on the Guatemalan coup of 1954. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Are you knee-deep in snow over in Boston, Massachusetts? It's been unseasonably warm. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to join you all. Oh, well, it is great to have you here. I wish it was unseasonably warm here in Europe. Sadly, it's just freezing cold, bloody windy, but there's no beautiful snow. So let's just cast that to one side. Let's turn our attentions to warmer climates, to the Guatemala in 1954, the Guatemala of, well, I guess the Cold War, one that was progressing relatively well up until an American coup took place to overthrow the democratically elected leader of the nation, President Hakobo R. Benz. Now, Rachel, we know that the US has long sought to control the affairs in its own backyard, only to think of the 1823 Monroe Doctrine and the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary that stated that America would ensure that no European nations would increase their influence or recolonize the region, and that the US would, how do you put it, broadly policed its interests in the area. So this takes me back to kind of old policing missions or bandit wars or banana wars during the early 1900s. So Cuba in 1905, Nicaragua in 1909, or Haiti in 1915. But we're talking about the 1950s, Rachel. We're talking about the Cold War. So what did Arbenz do that was so bad? What did he do to upset the US government? Arbenz did the dastardly deed of inviting several known communists to join his presidential cabinet. 
And this, in the context of the Cold War, was a bridge too far. Let's go back in time a little bit to give a little context. What was happening in Guatemala? You know, who was Arbenz? And why did he do this dastardly deed of legalizing the Communist Party in Guatemala and becoming quite friendly with a known communist named Manuel Fortuny? So Guatemala, as you are saying, since the 19th century, if not before, had been part of the sphere of U.S. influence. Okay, so under the Monroe Doctrine, we the United States had wanted to keep people with accents like yours out of the hemisphere. So no Brits, no French, no Spaniards. After the period of formal colonization ended in the early 19th century, most Latin American countries had gained at least nominal independence, right? So Guatemala had been at least nominally independent since the early 19th century. However, the United States was like the 100-pound gorilla up north. And so so as you say, the U.S., particularly in the Caribbean and in Central America, engaged in repeated policing missions and invasions, occupations in various countries for various reasons throughout the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. However, by the 1950s, a lot of Latin Americans were fed up with this set of events. Already in the 30s, you saw significant guerrilla groups trying to overthrow or at least challenge U.S.-backed governments or kind of U.S. occupations. So Guatemala in the 1950s was a very particular place. A lot of listeners may not be familiar with it, but it was frequently in the U.S. headlines at the time because of what's called the United Fruit Company. So it was a place where United States significant financial interests were at stake. Many U.S. investors had their money in the United Fruit Company. It's kind of like the Google of the time. It was this enormous company based in Boston, actually. The papers are here in Boston. And United Fruit Company had some very high-level investors and supporters in first the Truman administration and then the Eisenhower administration. And so there were kind of two things that led to the United States overthrowing a democratically elected government in Guatemala in the 1950s. It's important to point out Jacobo Arbenz was elected fair and square in an open election, okay? So one factor leading to the overthrow was economic interests. There were people in the United States who were nervous about land reforms that Jacobo Arbenz had proposed in Guatemala. Those land reforms would have nationalized some United Fruit territories that were not currently being used. So if bananas were not actively being grown on a given tract of land, they could be nationalized under the new program that Jacobo Arbenz suggested in 1952. So that was one factor. One factor was protecting U.S. economic interests. This goes back to the 19th century. This is not anything new. The new factor was the Cold War era extreme paranoia about communism. So this was something, you know, we see red baiting and red scares in the United States going back in a long period. But these fears kind of went global in the 1950s and the United States started more actively interfering in the affairs of proto-communist, pro-communist or communist countries around the world. Jacobo Arbenz, it's really important to say, was not a communist, despite what the CIA would have you believe at the time and despite what many in Washington did genuinely believe. If you read all of the best sourced reports on Jacobo Arbenz, it's clear that his political idol was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So Jacobo Arbenz was something of a New Deal Democrat. So we can talk about why and how he came to be overthrown in that context. But the two main factors leading to the overthrow in the Cold War context were both U.S. economic interests, mostly in United Fruit Company, and then this sort of hysteria about communism on the global scale. Well, tell us more about Arbenz. Didn't he have a military background? Yeah, Arbenz came out of the Guatemalan military. He was of Swiss descent and, you know, like many Guatemalan elites, had some European background as well. 
Arbenz is a sort of interesting figure because he was not conservative. He came up through the military academy in Guatemala, which was not exactly a hotbed of radicalism. He met a beautiful Salvadoran woman in Guatemala City who later became his wife, Maria Villanova. And she had more kind of political commitments than he did. She was interested in getting to know artists, intellectuals, kind of lecturing people in Guatemala City. So I certainly don't want to ascribe to Arbenz's wife's the femme fatale role. It's not as if she duped him into becoming a communist or something like this. But as part of their shared intellectual life, she was clearly influential on his politics and she sort of brought him to the left. So whereas he would have started more conservative than Franklin Delano Roosevelt, she was bringing him toward the New Deal. Again, she was introducing him to communists. They were certainly in social circles with communists. Communists were part of his political arena. I would imagine she helped influence him in his decision to legalize the Communist Party but he was never a communist. So that's his sort of background. He was moving toward the left. And I will say this was a moment of democratic opening in Guatemala. Guatemala, like many other countries in Central America, had a series of dictatorships, a very repressive one in the 1930s. In 1945, there was a moment of opening. There were free and fair elections. Forced labor for indigenous people was gotten rid of for the first time as late as the 1930s. Certain punitive laws were overturned. And there was a socialist president before Hakobo Arbenz, who already was making the U.S. a little bit nervous. Arbenz came in, and what really ticked the U.S. off was the land reform plans. If you want to get at the heart of economic issues anywhere in Latin America, it's who controls the land and who controls the profits made from the land. And so Arbenz, his kind of most left-wing policy was that he was going to take lands that were not being currently utilized for agriculture throughout the country— give compensation to the people whose land he was nationalizing, but nationalize that land and give it to landless peasants, right? So this was something that was a bridge too far for the United States, but is a kind of moderate leftish policy of the time. And without the kind of context of the paranoia of the Cold War, probably wouldn't have triggered this disproportionate response from the US. Okay, so tell us a little about these land reforms. Are they a kind of Guatemalan New Deal? Is this about trying to put the economic prosperity of the country back into the hands of the people? And in these regions where you've got these massive conglomerates and these big landowners that aren't using the land, it's about trying to make it prosperous, trying to create some sort of growth in the economy, one that I'm sure is dominated at this time by the United Fruit Company. Yes. So these were somewhat moderate policies. And in fact, some people in the U.S. before the Cold War took this extremely hysterical anti-communist turn in the 1950s had even supported moderate land reforms in places like Taiwan or other parts of Latin America because they thought it would decrease the odds of a, com- of a country going communist. They thought it would decrease the odds of a country going communist because if people have access to a small bit of land, they're going to be less desperate. They're going to be less likely to join a Cuban-inspired guerrilla force, for example, in later years. So land reforms in of themselves were not terribly controversial. This is where the U.S. economic interests in Guatemala come in, however, the sort of vested interests of some people connected to the U.S. government. It's hard to overstate how much control United Fruit had not just over land in Guatemala, but over critical infrastructure. They all but owned Puerto Barrios, which is one of the most important ports in the country. They controlled the railroads. They were known as the octopus throughout Latin America because United Fruit Company was not just active in Guatemala, but also throughout the region. So they were known as El Pulpo, the octopus, because they had their tentacles and everything. So it was not just a matter of resting back some of the land. It was a matter of giving it to peasants who didn't have access to land on which to do really basic subsistence agriculture, growing corn, beans for tortillas and, you know, basic sustenance. So these land reforms are about trying to loosen the grip 
of the octopus. And all of that makes sense. But during this period, like you say, there is, you know, you could call it an over-the-top reaction to the threat of communism. But to be fair on President Truman at the time, the Soviet Union had just got the bomb. There was lots of worry that there would be infiltration of governments across continental North and South America and Central America. So you can see why there might be at least initial hesitations and concerns. But was there any inkling that there was communist subversion, a military plot, any sort of attempts to create a Guatemalan communist state that would rise up against the United States? Is there anything in the papers that you've gone through to justify any sort of American reaction to overthrow the government? What you see is a lot of bad information in the available sources. So to answer your question, there's a wonderful book called The Secret History by Nick Cullither. Nick is a historian who was granted full access to the CIA archives. The CIA wanted to write their own official history of what had happened in 1954 for training purposes. And what Nick shows, he was able to consult all of the documents that had to do with the 1954 overthrow shortly before his book was to be published. And his book was published unredacted internally for the CIA. Shortly before it was published for the rest of us, the CIA went through a change their mind in the 90s and heavily redacted his book. Okay, so I teach with this book and it has blank pages throughout, sort of blank sections throughout. So you can sort of guess what the CIA might have been blocking. The strong impression that you get from this book, nevertheless, is that the CIA really believed its own misinformation. They sincerely believed that there was a communist plot underway in Guatemala, and they were swept up by some of the hysteria that you are discussing. So I encourage people who are trying to think their way back to the 1950s as an exercise to understand that hysteria before you start to criticize it, which of course I strongly do, as a kind of particular geopolitical moment at which Good information was not always available. That said, what you also find in the CIA secret history are all of the documents pertaining to what the CIA did in response to their bad information, which included everything from sending large amounts of money to Guatemala, helping handpick the person who was going to overthrow Huckabo Arbenz, the democratically elected president, and even coming up with, most controversially, a manual of assassination techniques that was then later used in other CIA coups. Okay, so this is a proving ground for so many of the interferences and attempted assassinations that take place by the CIA across the Cold War. But how on earth does the CIA get involved in this in the first place? Is there a lot of lobbying by the United Fruit Company to the Truman administration, who then passes this on to the CIA? Or does the United Fruit Company have ties to the CIA already? The most important connection between the United Fruit Company and the U.S. government at this time were the Dulles brothers, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, who respectively were Secretary of State and head of CIA. So these could not be more prominent positions. Why was the CIA involved? These were very early days for the CIA, right? They had been formed out of some predecessor organizations and were just trying to cement themselves in terms of kind of influence and what their role would be in foreign policy. And so following what the CIA saw as a success in Iran the previous year, the CIA was lobbying hard, both because of vested interests from people involved with the United Fruit Company, but also because they were trying to expand their role within the U.S. government, right? The CIA was lobbying hard for this coup in Guatemala. 
I will say that it was Harry Truman who authorized the coup. And then Eisenhower authorized it again in 1953 when he was elected. So I have a colleague here at the BU Party School of Global Studies who is former CIA, and he always gets very annoyed when I talk about this coup. And he says it was a presidential coup. They signed off on it. So this one is for John, but really all of the planning came down to the CIA. So I will point the finger back at the organization that was most involved and most responsible. But it is true that there was presidential sign-off. Well, I was going through one or two of the CIA papers that have been released. And one quote that stuck out for me was they described these land reform measures as an intensely nationalistic program of progress coloured by the touchy anti-foreign inferiority complex of the banana republic. I mean, you can unpack that in so many ways. We can see that obviously bananas are important here. That's what the United Fruit Company are growing across Guatemala, right? This is the key financial incentive to make sure that the regime is kept on side. So in many ways, the CIA have this political presidential directive, but they are also operating kind of in this shadowy world of fulfilling American business interests. So the term banana republic comes from Central America and comes from an earlier time period. It comes from a short story by O. Henry who's talking about the United Fruit Company in Honduras. So the very term banana republic is often used as a kind of slur against Central American countries for not having their business in order, right? For not having functional governments. But it's the United Fruit Company that's corrupting those governments. So the interesting thing about that term is it's sort of a boomerang term. It's about U.S. inappropriate influence in what are supposed to be sovereign nations by this time. And of course, that weakens this understanding of sovereignty of Guatemala. It detracts and derides from the legitimacy of the administration, because what they're saying is that this country isn't really able to to govern itself. It doesn't have the economy to do so, even though that's exactly what they're trying to do at the same time. And the reason why that narrative is important, because it's exactly what is enshrined within that 1823 Monroe Doctrine and that 1904 Roosevelt Corollary that states if these nation states to the south of the United States of America, if they don't fulfill their obligations, if they aren't good neighbours, if they can't run their own country, then they will be subject to US policing They'll be brought back into line. They'll be subject to US interference. So take us through to this CIA mission. Is it called Operation PB Success? That's right. It's called Operation PB Success. And then there was a follow-up operation called PB History, in which the CIA tried to, after the fact, establish that there had been Soviet influence or kind of a big communist presence in Guatemala. They were never able to do that. But PB Success was the original operation. Okay, let's start at the beginning of the mission. What's the plan? What are they going to do? The plan was to spend as little money as possible to get the desired result. So the U.S. ended up budgeting around five to seven million dollars. That's quite something. But originally sent only 225,000 U.S. dollars. The idea was that Arbenz could be cowed, that there would be a psychological element to the coup. So the CIA was heavily involved in selecting who would lead the coup, who was a gentleman named Carlos Castillo Armas, a very disgruntled Guatemalan military official who actually had known Arbenz in the cadet school in Guatemala. So it's a kind of conflict of not brothers because they were not friends, but they came from the same training. Castillo Armas had nevertheless fallen out of favor and was living in exile in Nicaragua, which was led by a dictator who was a friend of the United States at the time. And very interestingly, in this official history written by Nick Cullither that I mentioned before, you can see in the CIA declassified documents that they are psychologically profiling different people to lead the coup. And they reject one because he seems too aristocratic. They don't think he's going to look kind of 
like a popular choice. Castillo Armas is sort of more indigenous in feature. He's a short guy. He's unprepossessing. So the CIA liked him because they thought, okay, this looks like someone who could lead a grassroots coup. This looks like someone who could lead a grassroots coup, as if anyone would be fooled. From the beginning, everyone knows the CIA. So they thought, this guy looks a little more probable. And also, he's easier to manipulate. He was sort of a simple guy in those ways. So the CIA sends the money. They prepare Castillo Armas to invade Guatemala, which he later does, leading a quite small band of men, I will say. And the psychological element was radio. So the U.S., pioneered for this mission, pretending to project radio from the rebels from the so-called jungle. They were actually projecting from Miami, Florida, into Guatemala and saying, you know, the rebels are getting closer. They're going to overthrow the government. And actually, this psychological element from the best that we know, there's a little bit of historical controversy about why Arbenz stepped down, but it's thought that he was pressured by some of the military officials around him who believed some of the psychological elements, who believed some of the threats, and also that people in Guatemala City started to panic. Castillo Armas did have access to some planes. They were flying overhead. They were bombing Guatemala City. So while the numbers were very small of rebels, they were able to make themselves appear larger, both because of the overhead bombing and significantly because of the radio. And in the end, the coup was successful in that Arbenz stepped down and turned over the government to, very reluctantly, turned over the government to, at first, a kind of triad of military officials who would lead together. And then later, Castillo Armas took over the whole thing. So the CIA, in the end, got exactly what it wanted, spent relatively little. The one part of their mission that they never succeeded in was the idea that they were going to overthrow a democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, and leave no fingerprints. Part of the mission was that no one would know it was the CIA. Everyone knew it was the CIA. Everyone in Central America, if you read the newspapers at the time, if you look at the speeches at the time, this was considered an outrage. So the coup didn't just set the model for later CIA coups around the world. The coup also set the model for Latin American Cold War era hatred for the United States and this kind of long tradition of anti-Americanism that goes back before the Guatemala coup, but that really intensifies after the coup. So the U.S. arguably shot itself in the foot here and helped intensify some of the anti-U.S. and communist movements in other parts of Latin America through this heavy-handed intervention. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence. And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me, but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so let's talk about some of these fingerprints. Now, this small band of troops that helped overthrow the government, where were they trained? They were trained in Honduras, so just across the border. The U.S. conveniently had a lot of military dictators in the region where they could launch missions and train soldiers. These rebels were not very well trained. I mean, in fact, it's dangerous for academics or historians to do counter history, but you can sort of imagine if Ottomans had held out longer, if the psychological component hadn't been a part of the coup, he may have prevailed. This may have looked more like the Bay of Pigs than like a successful overthrow of a government. And in fact, the Bay of Pigs was modeled on the 1954 coup in Guatemala. Oh, wow. Well, that's telling you something, isn't it? And of course, for those listeners who aren't well-versed in the Bay of Pigs, that's where you have the attempts to violently overthrow Castro in Cuba. And it was a, in the case of Cuba, it was a disaster, but Guatemala had succeeded. So what the CIA learned in heavy air quotes from their quote-unquote success in Guatemala was that they could do this wherever they wanted. And in fact, the Cuban rebels were trained on Guatemalan soil before heading to Cuba to try to overthrow Castro. And then they were left on the beachhead without much air support. And that meant that Castro could go and round them all up. And of course, Castro had the fortitude to do that and the confidence to do that where it sounds like Arbenz didn't. So it's so interesting here. The resolve of a leader can make the difference between a successful CIA coup or not. Now, another fingerprint in this, you mentioned about bombing. Who on earth is conducting this bombing? Is this air power supplied by the US? Yes, absolutely. This is why it was the idea that the coup would go unperceived as a US-backed CIA operation was always ludicrous. Guatemalans didn't have access to those kinds of planes, right? They didn't have access to that kind of material. I will also say, just going back to the Bay of Pigs issue, Castro had resolve and he had his personal qualities as, as a leader. He also had massive support from the Cuban population. And that was something that in Guatemala was lacking, right? So in Guatemala, the land reform was very divisive. So we're really heavily emphasizing the US aspect here, but there were sort of class divisions within Guatemala that made some of these land reforms unpopular. What I would say is that Castillo Armas was already planning a coup before the U.S. got involved, right, with the support of some of the more right-wing elements in Guatemalan society. 
it's pretty easy to guess that he would not have been successful without the U.S. support. But there are these kind of existing divisions within Guatemalan society. So I do want to mention that. No, it's really important to note because when you look back at the Cuban situation, we can say that he had broad public support. But the truth is he'd purged society of anyone who was against him as well. So when you look back... People were voting with their feet. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so when you go back and you look at Guatemala during this time, it's interesting you say there's kind of fertile public and political ground to see how this could perhaps take place, how this could be a success for the CIA. So I'm still baffled by the fact you've got these US bomber planes flying overhead. I assume the pilots, are they US pilots or are they US trained Guatemalan rebel pilots or pilots from Honduras? Where are they from? The registers of who was flying the planes are still classified, right? We don't know all of that information, but we do know that US forces were involved in training those who flew. So that's the information that we have. In the case of Cuba, you still hear in Miami, you know, people complaining about the fact that the U.S. government did not provide air cover for what they were trying to do in the Bay of Pigs. It's funny because the CIA really should have learned the lesson that if they saw the 1954 coup as a success, air cover was part of that psychological effort. But they weren't willing to back the Bay of Pigs in that way. So, I mean, there are many different takes on that, but the bare facts is that the CIA made one choice in one case and another in the Bay of Pigs. Or indeed, you know, going back to your colleague's point about the presidencies here and and the presidential involvement, you know, Kennedy makes a very different choice when it comes to the Bay of Pigs, perhaps very different to what Eisenhower would have made and one very different decision that Eisenhower did make in supporting this particular coup. So take us to the coup itself. Do we see a march on the city afterwards? Do we see broad public support, celebration? Celebrations in the streets? Is Arbenz ousted? Does he have to run away? Is he killed? What happens? So what happened was because the coup was never a matter of extreme public support, there was a kind of pathetic reception, as far as I recall, in Guatemala City. And it was a bigger deal, the arrival of a delegation from the U.S. who was kind of overseeing the transition. You know, some Guatemalans do remember the coup differently than what I'm describing. That's important to say. Some celebrated the coup. Some Guatemalans, similar to people in Washington, thought that a communist takeover of the country was imminent and that the Castillo-Aramas rebels had saved the country from becoming a communist island in Central America. This is ludicrous based on the historical evidence that we have, but there, there were some Guatemalans with that fear. What I will say is perhaps unexpected is many military cadets, so many of Arbenz and Castillo-Aramas' classmates were against the coup, even if they were right-wing and even if they were anti-communist. Why? Because of the national sovereignty issues that we talked about before. Because the CIA's fingerprints were so obvious on the coup, there was a whole band of cadets who got together and decided they were going to try to overthrow Castillo Armas because he had sold out the country. He's what's called in Latin America, vende patrias, someone who sells out the country to the North Americans. So the beginning of a long and extremely bloody and destructive civil war in Guatemala has its roots in the 1954 coup. This is the sort of original sin of the 20th century in Guatemala. And from, you know, the roots are in 1954. Some of the cadets went into the mountains, trained themselves eventually as a guerrilla force. So this is quite unexpected. This is not the kind of left-wing guerrilla forces in Latin America that you expect, where it's kind of idealistic students or landless peasants. These are former military cadets, right, who are for nationalist reasons starting a guerrilla insurgency. And it morphed over the course of the 1950s. And the Guatemalan Civil War is thought to really 
take off around 1960, 1963. It lasted until 1996. Oh, my word. So we're talking about massive instability caused by this initial coup. So Castillo Armas and his band of rebels with US air support march on the capital. Is there broad support in the streets? Are there parades? What happens to Arbenz? Is he killed? Arbenz is not killed. There was a manual for potential assassinations included in the CIA planning, but Arbenz, because of the psychological tactics, agreed to go into exile. So he very reluctantly turned over the government to a military triad, which included Castillo Armas. He was dragged out in his pajamas to the Guatemala City airport for maximum humiliation in front of photographers. And then he went into exile first in Mexico City and then later spent some time elsewhere, including Cuba, which, of course, raised hackles in the United States. I will repeat, he was never a communist, not even a crypto communist, but that identification always raises hackles. The question of how Castillo Armas was received in Guatemala City is a complex one because some Guatemalans did have the same kind of anti-communist hysteria as their U.S. counterparts in Washington. So the Guatemalan elite tended to be relieved. Castillo Armas, of course, overturned the land reform right away. So lands were returned to the large landowners, including United Fruit. And there were some celebrations, right, to welcome Castillo Armas. What I will say, and the kind of more unexpected aspect of this, was the reaction of some of the military cadets who had gone to school with both Arbenz and Castillo Armas. They were driven primarily by nationalism. We've talked about how national sovereignty was such an important issue in most Latin American countries at this time. And many cadets viewed Castillo Armas as being what's called a vende patrias, someone who sells out the country to the North Americans, right? So the coup, because it was backed by the CIA and everyone knew it was backed by the CIA, was seen as a wound to national pride by some of these military officials. Very unexpectedly, a small group of them peeled off and went to form one of the first guerrilla groups to attempt to overthrow the government of Castillo Armas. And that small group that headed to the kind of eastern part of the country to foment a rebellion, it was really thought of as a nationalist rebellion. This is not what we think of as the guerrillas in Latin America during the, the Cold War, who are generally students, various degrees of idealism or peasants and so forth. These were quite right-wing military officials, some of them, who nevertheless saw the CIA coup as such a front to Guatemala that they would overthrow Castillo Armas because he had sold out the country. This guerrilla force kind of expanded in size and helped kick off an incredibly bloody event in the Americas, which was the Guatemalan Civil War. It heated up all through the 50s and the kind of official start date is this 1960 or 1963. It lasted until 1996. This was a 36-year civil war in which an estimated 200,000 people were killed. So the 1954 coup is seen by most historians of Guatemala as the precipitating event for the later civil war. So I'm starting to question how the CIA could see Operation PB success as much of a success. It leads to decades of instability. And I'm assuming tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths. That's exactly right. And the CIA internal history, Nick Cullither's book, which I've already mentioned, is so fascinating because it is attempting for training purposes, for internal training purposes of the CIA to revise this history, to say the CIA had considered Operation PP success a success because they narrowly defined it to what happened in 1954. But if you take the measure of the entire 20th century, 
the United States got exactly what it didn't want, which was a very active, in the event, communist-inspired guerrilla insurgency, because the guerrillas that I've described, it kind of morphed into something more familiar, right? Where you had left-wing students getting in touch with Castro's Cuba and all the rest of it. So it changed over time. But the U.S. ended up with exactly the kind of formation that it didn't want and was forced or certainly actively participated in backing bloody military dictatorships in Guatemala, just as they did in El Salvador and many other countries. But the difference in the Guatemalan case is that the U.S. really helped overthrow the person that might have been their best bulwark against a communist insurgency, which was a kind of New Deal style Democrat who was going to address some of the issues of landless peasants in Guatemala exactly in order so that they wouldn't radicalize and become communist. So you can really see the 1954 coup as a failure, even on its own terms. So I'm going to ask you a question, Rachel, that I fear I know the answer to. Now, as this civil war starts to rage on, does the US cut its losses and think, well, this was actually a massive failure? Does it withdraw from the internal affairs of Guatemala? Or do we see the US government, US military or the CIA keeping their fingers in many pies and keeping this civil war burning? You know the answer to that question. The United States did not learn their lesson. They continued to support to the tune of millions of dollars, various right-wing military dictatorships who were actively repressing and murdering large swathes of the population. I will mention in particular dictator Ephraim Riosmont, who ruled the country from 1982 to 1983. President Ronald Reagan flew to Guatemala during those years to say that Efren Riosmont was being accused of human rights violations, and he was getting what Reagan called, quote-unquote, a bum rap. This guy is getting a bum rap, meaning we're being unfair to him. In 2013, Efren Riosmont was tried in the Guatemalan National Court for crimes of genocide, and he was convicted. So he oversaw the genocide uh, targeting specific Maya indigenous populations in Guatemala, and these were exactly the kind of dictators that the United States was supporting. I will say the genocide sentence was later overturned for political reasons within Guatemala, but he's widely considered to have been a genocidal dictator that was backed by the US. So there are many, many layers to this history, Rachel, and I feel like we've only just touched the surface of this. But what are the legacies of this Guatemalan coup in Guatemala today? Does it continue to affect relations between Guatemala and the United States? Well, the United States has never really taken responsibility for what we did in Guatemala. So the current most important political issue in U.S.-Guatemalan relations is migration. You see huge numbers of Guatemalans migrating up to the United States through Mexico, along with counterparts from El Salvador and Honduras. It's not just Guatemalans. But you have these massive numbers of Guatemalans migrating to the United States, including from indigenous communities that were directly targeted in the U.S.-backed genocide. And so I think that the U.S. bears a lot of responsibility for destabilizing Guatemala and making it an unlivable place. But that's not something that's part of the public conversation about migration in the United States. And the thing that fascinates me about all of it is, you know, we could look at this history and we could accuse academics that are studying this as being left-wing, woke, communist sympathizers. But I've been through these CIA papers researching for this episode, and all of the CIA documents support exactly what you're saying. So tell us, Rachel, if people do want to read more about this, if they do want to learn more about this themselves, this fascinating, bizarre, tragic, awful history, where can they do so? There are many places that you can do so. I will say, anytime I write about 
the coup or teach the coup to students, I use the CIA's own documents because otherwise it sounds too wild. It sounds like a conspiracy theory that I had cooked up. It does, yeah. But this is all extremely well documented. So I would point listeners toward Nick Culliser's A Secret History, which is this wonderful internal CIA account that is partially redacted that was published. I would point them toward Bitter Fruit, a wonderful book by Stephen Kinzer and Stephen Schlesinger. There are a lot of accounts of this. I will also mention Mario Vargas Llosa, the famous Peruvian Nobel laureate, recently wrote a novel called Harsh Times about Jacobo Arbenz and told from the perspective of some of the players we've been talking about today. So I'll recommend that as well. Wonderful. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.